Good evening, Sangha. Can you all hear me? Great. So tonight, I am talking about one of my very favorite subjects, and that is samasati, or right mindfulness. It has been such a huge medicine for me in my life. I attribute any good thing I've ever done and any happiness of my life is due, probably beginning with sati, sati sampajanya, uh, right mindfulness. It's been huge in my life. So this is what Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche says about why we practice mindfulness. Why do we practice it? What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered by the proper attitude, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforce, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprints. I don't know about you, but is that just my mind that I see that in? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you guys? And actually, one of um, my very favorite uh, newer teachings that I have been exposed to is um, this one teacher that I've been sitting with lately and will be sitting with next year, I'm so happy. Ajahn Suchito has this wonderful uh, book about the paramis. I'm hearing some, mm, yeah, it's a free book. It's about the paramis. And, and the, he opens it up by talking about the four floods. The four floods. And I think we all have a lot of exposure to the floods as we come into retreat because we have been, you know, dealing with them in various ways, but they can be overpowering the first couple days, weeks, months, or years of a retreat. And those four floods are, the first one is the flood of sensuality. You know, and that might be um, sexual sensuality re related to, you know, just the hormones, depending on your age. Oh my gosh, they are really strong. I'm telling you, being older has some really excellent uh, benefits <laughs> that you're not driven by that as much as we used to be. Boy, it is such a relief. But, you know, just sensual floods. And then that also, you know, is food and any type of entertainment. Oh, is I, am I making too much noise? Okay. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so sensuality, you know, anything that we want, or actually also anything that we don't want, anything that we push away to. So a flood of sensuality that we could just see overtaking us. That's the first flood. The second flood is the flood, I love this one, the flood of becoming. The flood of becoming. And according to, you know, one of the Buddha's uh, you know, foundational teachings of dependent origination, uh, 
you know, we are becoming in, in relation to anything that we have contact with. Anything that we have contact with, we either see it's pleasant or unpleasant, and that brings uh, a tanha or clinging, and upadama, uh, upadana craving, and that craving produces an identity for us. It is so fascinating. And it's so interesting. You can see, you know, you might even just watch, uh, investigate, you know, what, who is becoming at this moment in relation to what you are uh, having contact with. It is really profound. And I know when I'm uh, in retreat, one of the things I notice most is me telling myself who I am over and over and over again. Now, if there is really somebody there, would we have to keep telling ourselves that? I mean, if there was some, you know, non, non, uh, some uh, atta, some permanent self that wasn't created by causes and conditions, would we have to keep telling ourselves who we are? But that becoming to me is so interesting. So that's the second flood, the flood of becoming. Eyeing and myeing. And then the third flood of views. I love that one. That one is a lot more subtle, but it's incredibly profound in our lives, in the lives of human beings. And it impacts all sentient beings, you know, the views of who we are and who we deserve that is, you know, almost like background uh, beliefs that aren't even so relevant right now, but it determines... Uh, what we perceive, how we, re- how we perceive things, and it determines the thoughts that arise once we perceive things. And those things harden into views. And a lot of these views, well, all of these things totally existed before we were ever born. I mean, these aren't things that are personal to us. This is just the uh, manifestations of being a human in this lifetime all of these views, you know, most of them we didn't create. So that's the third flood, the flood of views. And then the fourth flood is the flood of avijja, of ignorance. And this is what we are grappling with as we come on retreat, you know, to see more clearly uh, these causes of suffering for ourselves. You know, these are fundamentally these causes of uh, suffering, of wanting things to be like this or not like that, or wanting to be this and not wanting to be that, and knowing that, you know, this is how things are and they shouldn't be like that. You know, having not a lot of patience and acceptance of things as they are, and just not even knowing the real nature of reality. But... Guess what? This guy who lived about, I guess it was 2,600 years ago, 2,400 years ago, 2,400 years ago, he kind of saw through this and he said, hey, this is one way where you might see through all of that. And uh, he proposed this path of liberation. You know, that I love this one, um, spiritual teacher, Marianne Williamson, you probably have heard of her, she's actually a Christian teacher, and she said, everyone is on a spiritual path. 
Most people just don't know it. And most people don't know in which direction they're walking. And we're always walking in one direction or another. And the question is, in which direction are we walking? Towards freedom or towards ambivalence and ignorance or towards even more suffering. So uh, the Buddha taught that there are two things that really determine and really help us get on this uh, path of insight, this progressive insight. And he said the first thing that we need is the voice of another. Don't you love that? The voice of another. And then the second thing we need is wise attention. And that is one of the ways that I interpret mindfulness. Mindfulness is wise attention to be able to see clearly what's going on. And given those two things that you know, um, welcome us to the path of awakening, um, so I want to say just a little thing about um, samasati, about uh, right mindfulness, because all of us can be mindful any time, and, you know, I think we probably are mindful a lot of the time, or we can, can be mindful a lot of the time. But I think that it's, it's useful to make a distinction between being mindful and having right mindfulness. And for me, it's a very, as um, Pascal talked so beautifully this morning in the instructions about um, whether something is personal and we, you know, uh, we actually see it as a, a becoming or whether it is just, um, you know, wise attention. Um, so uh, sati is uh, awareness, so awareness of what's arising in the moment. And then sampajanya, uh, clear comprehension, is the element of right mindfulness that I often don't have. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's usually best produced when I'm sitting in deep meditation practice or have a daily practice or um, devote time to development of this uh, second part of mindfulness, sampajanya. And so uh, sati is, um, can be wise reflection. It's not just an unconceptual uh, knowing because we can use sati to do very wise reflection about what is happening in the moment for us now. And sampajanya, also known as intuitive awareness, is really the element that wisdom arises for us to see clearly what is happening in this moment. Does that make sense? So maybe... Sati could be perception or knowing something, and sampajanya is clear comprehension of what that thing is. Yes. I like to say that um, mindfulness, particularly clear comprehension, is the data collection system for wisdom. It is the data collection system for samasati clear comprehension. And that usually is without concepts. That is usually letting go of thinking that we know what something is. 
There's a few elements of uh, samasati as we sit in retreat and go into these days together in deep practice. The first is setting a sincere intention. And um, according to the Abhidhamma, which many of you probably know is the Buddhist psychology, intention is one of those universal mental qualities that is present in every moment of awareness. There's always an intention. But oftentimes we don't know what that intention is. And actually that's one of the key Uh, directions for our awareness is knowing what our intention is in this moment. So setting, and we can set an intention. To set an intention that, yes, I'm going to use this very precious time. Roxanne talks so beautifully about just the preciousness of the silence in this time. The preciousness of not having to do anything else but really practice and open to these hearts and minds, this beloved self, the way Pascal so beautifully talks about it, this lever right here, this honey that we are sitting with. I was with some yogis and they're saying, we're going to get all Pascal. Oh, honey, I love her. It was such a compliment to you. You were a verb. (laughs) You were a loving verb. I loved it. Yeah, this intention to open with tenderness and love. You know, for those of you have, who have children, I've heard people say that when your child wants love, what it'll do, it'll take your face and it'll put it so it looks directly at you, right? Like, pay attention to me. And that's the expression of love, right? And isn't that what we're doing to ourselves right here? We're going to be deeply, give ourselves deep attention for the next few days and hopefully with as much acceptance and love as we can. This is what love feels like. This is what it could feel like. So intention is a key element of this. Another one is self-coaching. I know many of us in the Dhamma field are coaches of some kind, but I think one of the most valuable things that we develop for ourselves as practitioners of the entire Eightfold Path um, is to know how to coach ourselves. You know, maybe even visualizing one of your deepest benefactors or someone that you really trust and love you know, maybe become Patril Rinpoche or something and give ourselves advice about what's happening right now. How to coach ourselves about, you know, backing off about if we're striving too much about relaxing or if we are just kind of fooling around and not paying attention to maybe up the effort a little bit to really figure out how to be our best coach as we go, uh, as we engage in this ceremony. You know, getting back to the ceremony of it, it's like, you know, one way to think about it is if you were, um, you were um, a minister or one of the, you know, the best man or best woman or best um, other person behind your relatives who are getting married, I mean, would you space out then and just look around and look at your cell phone and, you know, do all crazy stuff? No, you know the solemnness of this moment. 
you know, the attention to presence and the sacred energy field that was created. I mean, that's exactly what we're engaging in this whole time we were here. You know, that element of profundity could be every moment of our lives with the right set of intention. So this uh, self-coaching. And then letting go of concepts. Um, But also knowing how to use wise reflection. Um, I was so lucky to sit with um, the Venerable Anala Yo, who I think lives up at BCBS now some of the time. I sat with him in the way he's teaching the Satipatthana now. And he makes a very clear point of talking about wise reflection. And I'm going um, to lead the um, instructions tomorrow so I will share a little bit with you about how he's teaching that now. And it is so profound and so moving. And I'm going to put something up on the board after this talk for you to... Um, check out too. So um, getting back to Satisampajanya, you know, the right linear mind, the the mind that counts things and uh, has a conceptual overlay for everything. And then the left brain, the intuitive wisdom element of the self. And to make sure that both of those are engaged with us but definitely letting go of a lot of stories that we tell ourselves. Again, I thought um, Pascal did such a beautiful, almost like uh, mindfulness out loud this morning, (laughs) talking about how he sees his own stories in his mind and says, oh honey, come on, you can let go of that. We love you, you know. All these stories we tell ourselves of how we're better than, how we're worse than, and actually even same as, all of this becoming. That is essentially a conceptual overlay over reality. So just seeing when that's happening and realizing that if we know what something is, then we are not open to it being something much deeper or knowing more deeply what something is. And... um, One thing that it's been a really important reflection for me very often in practice is, you know, we don't let go of the things that are harmful. We don't let go of them. Wisdom lets go of them. Wisdom arises and lets go of the multiple manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. And, you know, mindfulness, particularly, you know, Intuitive awareness is the data collection system for wisdom. So just letting go of knowing what something is and going deeper and deeper into it. Opening more deeply to what something is. So in the teaching of Sampajanya or clear comprehension, mindfulness and clear comprehension, it's taught that there are four elements of a sampajanya. The first is purpose. And I think that's probably related to intention. And refraining from activities that are irrelevant to what we're trying to do right now. And that's a real interesting one. That's one where we could have 
I think bring in some wise reflection, you know, just investigate about whatever you're doing in the moment. Is this uh, relevant to the path that I'm on right now? You know, how many times we read the board for any new information? Right, or read the labels on boxes or searching for any element of entertainment. Just a wise reflection, is this related to the path? Actually, it is if you're seeing that there's greed in the mind for some entertainment. You know, if that's what we're seeing, that could be very useful. So purpose, clarity of purpose. Knowing if our activity is in which direction we're walking with this activity. The second element is suitability. Is what we're doing right now um, suitable for us, the development of deeper samadhi? Because that's what we're trying to do right now. In the first couple of days, we're having a clearing out. It's almost like a... uh, it's almost like a detox period. That, you know, all of these things that we might have suppressed for a while and haven't thought about, they're going to come up and haunt us for a day or two. And, you know, all we need to do is say, yes, I see you, all of my anxiety. I see you, anxiety, and I love you. It's okay. I recognize you. You're there. Or fear or greed or despair is excellent to see. Oh, there you are, despair. You know, just to be able to see uh, that's wise reflection. But knowing, you know, what activities that we are doing that um, are, you know, deepening our samadhi right now or not. And I think one of the places that we get very um, kind of not sure about this is in walking meditation. I just found this brilliant Pia Tan discourse on walking. I'm going to send it to you for. It's really good. (laughs) And, you know, people, actually more people get enlightened walking than sitting meditation. Walking meditation is profound and can provide quite a bit of samadhi or concentration or stillness of the mind, which really brings in the sampajanya, the clarity element of it. And for example, suitability would be, and this happened exactly to me. I was sitting up at the first refuge with Kamala Masters, one of my dear friends and beloved teachers. And she said, Bonnie, I know you want to walk the loop a lot, but walking the loop isn't necessarily walking meditation. She said, that is an issue of suitability. So if you need to relax, if you're getting too tight, and you need, you know, maybe want to do some loving-kindness meditation while you're walking, the loop is fine, but be careful that you, uh, you realize that it also can be, uh, have an impact on your effort level. I thought that was very wise. But I mean, not saying don't to walk the loop, the loop is beautiful, but to know you know, just how it's contributing, its suitability for what we're cultivating right in this moment. And then the third is the domain, to know the domain that we're in. And um, I've seen this in me and others, like sitting next to a person who 
raises some of those energetic feels or, um, you know, realizing that we don't want to be around, um, you know, persons, places, or things that definitely maybe take us away and distract us from a very calm presence with what's happening in this moment. It's crazy. And then the fourth element, I think, is uh, and this is where, for me, is a non-delusion. And this element, for me, I really can tell whether I'm not being deluded about something or not, depending on the stickiness of what I'm seeing in my heart and mind. And I'm sure you've seen, sometimes we have thoughts that, uh, you know, we can see very clearly that, wow, uh, this is not perfect, this is not permanent, and this is not personal. You know, we have thoughts that aren't very sticky. But then we have some stock, uh, thoughts that just feel so much like us. And we can see the becoming around these thoughts. And for me, it's always about, and lately, so, you know, as we know, there's a lot of identity politics happening in the U United States right now. And uh, for me, it touches on, you know, things that, I thought I had decolonized growing up, but man, I realize I've got some more decolonizing to do. I'm seeing um, a disregard for certain, for certain social locations. It's okay for people just to dismiss people who have a different gender than is the most popular or different ethnicity or shape or size. Actually, they say the most invisible people uh, in the United States, I know at least, are old women. Age and gender have a huge impact on who's visible or deserves attention or respect. And for me, I'm having all of these feelings of, uh, and they're arising in me, of disrespect. I'm thinking, wow, I am getting disrespected so much. And it's triggering you know, it's triggering my, you know, life of 62 years of what it feels like to have grown up in this body. And I'm sure all of us have uh, similar um, measures of things that were difficult for us. So this isn't personal. It's not personal. And so for me, the question is, how sticky is all of it? How much do I fly into a rage? And when I fly into a rage... Even if I do, can I actually use that experience for some good for myself? And I had this experience, so I'll tell you this one, that I thought I turned um, a Samoha into, you know, a delusion into uh, 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 suitability and, you know, a good intention. I was actually teaching a retreat and uh, I was teaching, a, I think it was the March, no, it was the February month long at, I, at Spirit Rock. And, you know, at, so we had a little uh, debriefing for people who were leaving after February. And this yogi came up to me and obviously really angry and upset. And I was incredibly sensitive. You know, we're in retreat too here. The teachers are totally in retreat. Our sensitivity level is so much higher. And this yogi came up to me and said, I have some feedback for you. <laughs> and I could tell right away he was going to say something I couldn't hear right then. And I said, you know, I am very sensitive right now. And if you're going to tell me a lot of negative stuff, maybe I could give you my email and you could email me in a week or something. And I actually walked away and he followed me. Wow. I know. And he started telling me, he said, 
I don't know why you're sitting up on that stage. You know, I could tell you have no mindfulness. I know it was real, and I was so sensitive. I mean, I couldn't even talk. And I just walked away from him. And But you know, it was so deep. But you know, I was so happy that, you know what thought came to my mind? I mean, one of the biggest thoughts, I'm just breaking up thinking about it. It's like, oh my gosh, this is what wrong speech can do. Just the pain of this. And I committed, man, I don't want to do this to anybody. You know, and when you reflect on how that's done to you, you you will relive this. You know, figure a way to turn that into something really wholesome for you. You know, I think that that is suitability and that is domain and purpose. Satisampajanya. Of course, I wish that would happen more often. (laughs) But, you know, even when that arises, when we can turn you know, some really, the first arrow, we can turn the first arrow and have it turn into a diamond rather than the second arrow when we believe it and fume about things that we probably in this moment have no control over. I think that's another wise reflection. How much control do I have over what is happening in this moment and these external forces? Maybe on the long run, absolutely, we can all work t- for change of course we all do but in this moment how much control do I have and do I want to wrestle with it or do I want to surrender and feel it and realize that it's not perfect this is hey man first noble truth is like this and this is not permanent wow it'll be interesting this is arising wow this is strong let's see how it, you know, gets stronger or weaker, what even happens with the intensity of it. So this is not permanent. Yeah, this is changing even in this strong thing. And then, you know, wisdom arises and says, hey, this isn't personal. This is not about you, however, whoever is becoming in that moment. You know, un- unconsciously becoming, because o- oftentimes we're becoming something that we don't even realize an identity is created that we can't even see because it's so, um, it's so much, you know, just part of our perceptual field. For me, I've deconditioned a lot. My poor mother and parents actually both grew up in the South and moved to the North when they were, um, you know, young adults and... My mother had a profound sense of self-pity and lack of agency. You can imagine, I'm sure those were the social conditions that produced that. And I was on actually sitting the three months here when one of the uh, meditation teachers started talking about how Christopher Columbus represents the spirit of exploration that we're under. <laughs> And as, you know, an indigenous person, I had a panic attack. I was going, oh my God, Christopher Columbus is in the room. (laughs) But, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, we never know what's our good and bad karma. At that moment, I was thinking, 
wow, this, this is bad karma. This person is going to ruin my retreat. And I actually had like a two-day panic attack where incredibly strong emotion, but because it was so strong, I saw things more clearly than I had ever seen. And I saw this huge energetic identity feel of self-pity and lack of agency that I never knew was um, overlaying my, per- my uh, perception. It was always part of my perception, but it was so always there and ubiquitous, I never saw it because I never knew what it was like not to have it. And it was a huge, you know, that's what we mean by mindfulness, getting a frame around it. I saw the beginning of that and the end of that. So, uh, and I saw it as an energetic field and I could, you know, when it arose again, since I was, you know, I got a sense of it, I could say, Mara, I see you. I see you, self-pity. And I love you, Bonnie, but that's not you. <laughs> you know, we can, we can decondition it that way. So sometimes, you know, uh, that's another thing that when we get really reactive to things, it offers us an opportunity to see something that might be um, impacting our perception that we don't even know is there that we don't even know is there. Mindfulness, wow. Another thing for those of you who are into kind of doing oppositional things, <laughs> I talked about this at a, uh, uh, Pascal invited me to teach this incredible retreat at uh, True North up in uh, the Toronto area. True North, bow to True North, we love True North. That's a great place to do retreats. <laughs> that um, this whole idea that mindfulness is an is a is a uh, aspect of cognitive justice because it's a southern epistemology. It's another way of knowing that isn't like a conceptual overlay. It is definitely an alternative knowledge system. So it's an expression of cognitive justice. So it was so sweet. Uh, there was actually an ex nun who was sitting in that retreat, and she said, oh, "I just came up with a chant." What do we want? Cognitive justice. <laughs> when do we want it? Now and now and now and now. <laughs> that might be useful sometime. <laughs> but this is the claim of the sutta, of the Satipatthana Sutta. And most of us probably know that mindfulness is taught actually in uh, two main suttas, of the Pali Canon, of the Nikayas, as our, as our wonderful Western um, convert Buddhist Theravada tradition teaches, the Satipatthana Sutta and the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. And then there's two other suttas. There's one specifically of mindfulness of the body, and then, of course, the Anapanasati Sutta, which is mindfulness of the breath. And they all pretty much teach the same a way of understanding, the way of doing this practice. And this is what we're teaching here. And this is what the suttas say, uh, say about this mindfulness. This is the only way, O bhikkhus, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. 
Wow, I want some of that. I'm so glad it doesn't belong to a drug company. (laughs) They would charge a lot for that. (laughs) Freely offered. Isn't that wonderful? The Buddha, you know, the fact that he was a monk, he didn't believe in, in that economic system. He said, hey, I'm offering it freely. And you'll feed me, that'll be good exchange. I loved it. So this is such great medicine. And one of the, um, you know, another important aspect of Sampajanya, of clear comprehension, is an equanimous receptivity. Because one of the uh, foundational principles of, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, and of the vipalasas, you know, I actually just did a little course on the Vipalasa Sutta for Tricycle. Actually, uh, our wonderful teacher here, Pascal, right now, you guys are going to miss it, <laughs> is doing a um, series in the Tricycle right now on the five aggregates. Maybe we could get him to teach us that while we're here. But anyway, um, what uh, Sati does, Sati Sampajanya, it clears up perceptual distortions. This is what, um, this is what uh, the Venerable Analyo says. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. It's like when we see things, you know, even before we know it, even before we realize it, we attach a meaning to it and a value to it right away. And I, and, you know, some of this is in the inherent biases that we have a, you know, burgeoning amount of scientific research about, inherent biases that we have. But often it is just, you know, how we have come to understand the world. And uh, if we're not seeing, you know, what the Buddha said is, if we're not seeing the imperfect nature of things, the impermanent nature of things, and the impersonal nature of things and everything, we have perceptual distortions. So that's what sati does. It helps us clear that up. And the Venerable Analyo says, the element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati, so the element of non-reactive watchful receptivity, that's our mindfulness, just seeing what is happening with not a lot of clinging, not a lot of stickiness to it. That's how I know that sampajanya is really strong is when things that arise, no matter what arises, it's not sticky. I can see it as, wow, that's just an aspect of humanity. It's not me. And I'm sure you've seen the difference in that, right? Things that arise that are not very sticky, you might have sati perception, but if it feels sticky, you probably don't have sampajanya, clear comprehension. And we want right mindfulness, right? Because that's... That's a condition for wisdom to arise and to free us. So uh, sati uh, or satipatthana is an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. It neither suppresses anything, but it also doesn't react to them. So... um, So in a way, sati, this uh, way of seeing what is happening in this heart and mind, is another expression of the middle way, 
How is it an expression of the middle way? Because mindfulness or sati holds whatever is arising, whatever experience that we are feeling in the body, in uh, Vedana, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral or mental proliferation, papancha, or even in the hindrances or the seven factors of awakening, the fourth foundation. It's holding it between obsession. It's not obsessing with, I want to get enlightened and I got to have more joy and it's got to be like this. Or even, I have to have sampajanya, you know, not even having that. It doesn't obsess, but it also doesn't deny It doesn't say, no, I'm not feeling that right now because I deserve not to be so afraid all the time or whatever. So it holds it between obsession and denial. Sati holds between indulgence and repression, between privilege and intolerance. It holds it in the middle between those two extremes. That is how sati holds things with an equanimous receptivity. And there are some unexamined assumptions and unvoiced thoughts that actually also um, are in opposition to samasati. And these are related to reality. And these are assumptions that we have that it's excellent to see. So this would be wise reflection, thinking about ways to do wise reflection. Uh, one of the unexamined assumptions is, is this is the way it's going to be forever. Do you ever have that? <laughs> so you might want to reflect when something comes up and it's really difficult. You might want to reflect, do I think it's going to be like this forever? Just see the thinking of that this is a permanent thing. So this is the way it will be forever. Another unexamined assumption, and this one, boy, this one is like Scott Bonnie's name on it. <laughs> In order for this to be okay, it should be pleasant. <laughs> right? It's like, where's the happiness? Where's the joy? And just, you know, feeling like if this isn't pleasant right now, this is not okay. Isn't, don't those things go together like an un unexamined assumption. In order for this to be okay, it has to be a pleasant Vedana. Wow, that's a deep one. And then another unexamined assumption is, I am making this happen or this is happening to me. Or like, I have control over this somehow or I'm doing this. That's an excellent thing to reflect on. Like, who's doing this? <laughs> who's knowing? And, you know, who's thinking? Just asking those questions. Some wise reflection. And then another one is, this is beautiful and desirable. This is beautiful. That's a very deep one. That's a distortion of perception. Distortions of thoughts and distortions of view. Those are all distortions of view. That this will, hap- this will continue forever. It, it has to be pleasant or it's unacceptable and this is happening to me or I'm making this happen. 
actually, Ruth King came up with the three reflections. It's not perfect. It's not permanent. It's not personal. I love the way that she has characterized that. And that's become a good mantra for me. That's a wise reflection. Not perfect, not permanent, not personal. An easy reflection. And we, and we know that the Buddha taught that you know, awareness, awareness as we are practicing mindfulness meditation, whether we're walking or sitting or whenever, there's four foundations of mindfulness. And one way to think about it is what is most predominant to awareness in this moment? What is the most predominant thing that awareness is knowing? It might be observations of the body It might be observations of feeling tone, something being pleasant, something being unpleasant, or something being neither pleasant or unpleasant, aka neutral. Maybe the most predominant thing to awareness in this moment is thoughts, thinking, or emotions mental states, heart-mind states. (coughs) Or maybe the most predominant thing that awareness is knowing at this moment could be the some hindrances to practice, hindrances to clarity. Like uh, greed, wanting something, aversion, pushing something away. Sleepiness, just lack of energy or restlessness and worry, too much energy. Or just doubt, like, am I doing this right? Did that guy know what he was talking about? Do these teachers know what they're talking about? Or the seven factors of awakening. So one very common physical first foundation experience in the first few days of retreat is um, physical unpleasant sensation, also known as pain. We can often have pain arise in our body as we just try to settle in. I'm always finding that, um, I'm always having like discharge of probably fight, fright, or freeze stuff stuck in my body. And my body's always wiggling around, trying, you know, it just is releasing all of these. That's a somatic experiencing thing, right? (laughs) And um, so we can experience pain. So the question is, how to deal mindfully with pain? And I think it's important to know that... um, it's good to actually let go of just having the one word pain and see what, you know, what is pain anyway? What is this sensation? Maybe it's a tingling or a numbness or a throbbing or a hardness and to really get under the concept and get, you know, to feel it more um, closely and then to see how it changes. 
you know, the intensity changes and the location might change. Uh, and just to let go and um, just note it. Oh, pain is like this. Well, hum- being human is, these bodies are crazy. They're painful. And then also, please don't think that, um, you know, in some beautiful, wonderful traditions, you're, th- you're said to have to sit through a lot of pain, you know, not move, but we're not really doing that on this retreat and in this tradition right now. So please know that if you can very mindfully, what will happen is there'll be an intention to move will arise, like an intention to relieve the pain, and that will usually be an intention to move. And it's great, wow, look at that intention to move before you move. And then if you don't catch the intention, as soon as you move, think, wow, I just missed that intention, right? Because I do that all the time. I move all the time and don't even see the intention to move. And it was, it's always there before to see the intention to move. But it's very wholesome to be good to these beloved selves here, selves, these causes and conditions here, to water the seeds of your love and compassion by saying, no, you don't need to suffer like that. Let's move a little bit. Let's get a little bit more comfortable. Let's stand up. Let's find the Tylenol. (laughs) Absolutely, that is okay. I always take Tylenol the first week I'm on retreat for long retreats because that really helps. (laughs) So mindfulness of the body and dealing with pain. And then working with emotions. Emotions is where I... Uh, get the most sticky and re, you know, in retreat or in everyday life. It just, particularly nowadays, I'm getting so triggered by what I see as rampant disrespect of me everywhere. It's like, wow, it just is triggering a lot of stuff. And again, I'm just trying to name it and, you know, say, wow, that is so sticky. I'm taking that so personally. And just give myself some love. Like I was, you know, Bonnie, honey, dear one, you're okay. You know, use this. This is excellent. This is excellent reflection on you don't want to have anybody feel like this. It's excellent resolve for your own right speech and right action. You know, this is what happens when people aren't mindful. You can hurt people and not even know it. So that's one way to deal with emotions. And um, one of our wonderful teachers, um, um, Ajahn Utejaniya, talks about that there's always both the mental object in the mind, so the emotion, whether it's a really beautiful, wholesome emotion, it's so important to notice those two. Notice the generosity and notice the compassion as it arises. Because when you notice it and you reflect, wow, that's really wholesome and that feels good to feel the Dvedana of it, you're strengthening that. That's like pouring water and putting manure on that, becoming stronger. So you really want to notice the good stuff too. It's really important. Um, But he says that in addition to 
uh, knowing what emotion or thought arises is that there's an attitude of the mind in holding that as well. And it's so important to know what the attitude of mind is holding that. Is it aversion like, oh, this shouldn't be happening? You know, and then you can hold the aversion in your mind with love and kindness too. Like, oh, Bonnie, aversion. You can handle this. You're strong, girl. Go for it. <laughs> Give yourself some coaching, a pep, pep talk. You are walking in the right direction. And then, of course, uh, you know, our beloved uh, Michelle McDonald and Tara Brock have reminded us so much that, you know, when we don't know what to do, we're lost in just thoughts and lost in confusion, we can come back to rain, right? Rain, which really is a very quick way to put all of these together to, um, and uh, RAIN, you know, the R stands for just recognize what's happening right now. What's happening right now? Just allow our sati, our awareness, our perception to come to this moment. What is happening right now? And whatever it is to allow and accept it. You know, not judging or censuring our feelings, to hold it in the middle between denial and repressions, you know, between obsession and, um, you know, not allowing. So accept and allow. And then investigation. You know, one element of investigation was what, was I thinking something that triggered this? What triggered this emotion or this feeling state or this uh, thought to arise? Can I trace it back a little bit? You know, what really triggered this? But not a lot of that. You know, you don't want to search back through your childhood or anything like that (laughs) in this moment. But if that arises, that might be interesting. But, you know, we don't, we're not doing psychotherapy in the traditional Western psychology sense on ourselves here at all. Remember, we're doing cognitive justice, another way of knowing. So we'll let go of that and talk to our therapist when we get out, right? Yes. And by this, if we just investigate wordlessly, like, oh, what is this? Investigate. What's most predominant about this experience? You know, that allows wisdom to arise to see clearly what is happening in this moment. And then also, you know, I love some of the, um, uh, particularly the Vajrayana has wonderful traditions. Vajrayana Buddhism has wonderful traditions about not taking it personally. They have Tonglin practice like, you know, to remind ourselves that this isn't personal. It's like, how many people on the planet right now are feeling this? Just connect with the exquisite community that are in deep despair right now all over the planet. I'm a part of an exquisite community of despair. All of my relatives across the planet, probably even four-legged and winged ones and finned ones in despair and confusion. Just our wonderful, you know, common humanity element of it and wishing all of us, you know, uh, relief from suffering and, you know, watering the seeds of goodwill in response to that. So that was mindfulness. 101, maybe a little mindfulness grad school, but mostly 101. (laughs) 
And again, you know, um, I think it's important for us not to cling to view about, well, that's mindfulness and that's not mindfulness. I was so shocked. I did a uh, webinar with Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, a month or two ago. And, you know, for me, Bhikkhu Bodhi's like the Pope. So I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe I was able to be at a webinar with him. And he said something at the end that totally blew his mind, blew my mind. He talked about... Well, you know, in the Buddhist text, I think they could learn something about the beauty of nature from indigenous peoples. And I was thinking, wow, did he just critique the Nikayas? And he did, and he's the one that translated the Nikayas. And so I, that was an excellent expression of letting go of view. If he could do it about the Nikayas, boy, I mean, that's one thing that I would like to do, let go of view. Because if we know what something is, you know, the cup is full. We want to let go of the full cup. So let's sit for a moment. any merit that we have generated from talking and listening, may that merit move us all towards complete awakening for the benefit of all beings in all directions, including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.